This week on the Tech on Tap podcast, Scotty Miller from DreamWorks joins us to discuss how they use NetApp to build some of the best animated features on the planet. Welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast with Justin Parisi. I love NetApp. Oh, yeah. NetApp. I love this company. Zipok. Zipok. I love NetApp because it's so funny. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast. My name is Justin Parisi. I'm here in the basement of my house and with me today we have a very special guest from DreamWorks Animation. Uh, Scotty is here. Hi Scotty, what do you do and how do we reach you? Oh my goodness, Uh, my name is Scotty Miller. Uh, I am a technology fellow and the VP for our platform services and infrastructure group here at DreamWorks. Probably the best way to reach me is via my LinkedIn. We will include that in the show notes because we are awesome like that we're very prepared here at the tech on tap podcast anyway uh so scotty of course is with dreamworks and we're going to talk about dreamworks and specifically how they use netapp uh so to start off with you know scotty if people are not familiar with dreamworks for some reason what is dreamworks and what sort of movies are they involved with so dreamworks is one of the world's premier content creators for feature animated film and animated television shows movies like shrek and madagascar and puss in boots and the crudes and trolls and the list how to train your dragon franchise the list goes on and on we've been making movies for about 25 years and television for about the last six or eight years Anything else interesting about DreamWorks? You know, we said you said you do TV shows and movies. Anything else in particular that you want to say about DreamWorks? Over the years, DreamWorks has also participated in some location-based entertainment. We've done theme park rides. About four years ago this month, we were purchased by NBC Universal as a way for them to extend their content portfolio and as a way to invest in us because the world loves content. So as part of that, we got involved in some location-based entertainment at the Universal Theme Park in Southern California as well as the theme parks in uh, Beijing. We've done some VR experiences. We've done some, we have a motion capture stage. It's a modern approach to an old art form. Scotty, NetApp and DreamWorks have had a 20-year relationship. Can you expand a bit on what that entails? That 20 years has entailed a very healthy customer relationship. Big fan of ONTAP because of data integrity, because of reliability, and it lets us focus on creating art instead of on managing storage systems. A couple of years ago, as we started looking at cloud service providers and the cloud as a way of operating and maybe extending our on-premises operations, NetApp also was making a a change to start supporting the ONTAP systems that we know and love in cloud service providers. So we entered into what we call an engineering partnership, a strategic alliance between DreamWorks and NetApp. So we're, we're more than just a customer. We also get to be an engineering partnership. We, we offer a living lab for NetApp engineers to test new things in our environment. We have some joint engineering projects around uh, new products that NetApp is looking at or experimenting with. We do alpha testing on behalf of products as they appear. And we have direct people-to-people contact between my engineers and the NetApp engineers. So, you know, you guys are famous for movies and TV shows and that sort of thing. What specifically have you done on NetApp products? Like what sort of movies have been made and what and how are you using NetApp products in your environment? The summary is all of them. So we've been a happy NetApp customer since the fall of 1999 when I started DreamWorks. One of the things I brought along early to replace some aging file servers was some NetApp appliances to solve our file services difficulties. Something to realize about feature film is 
everything we do in animated film is born digital. So file services is fundamentally our factory floor. Every artist contributes files, reads files, writes new files. Our HPC environment is file-based and our final product is data represented as files. And every step of these processes over the four years it takes to make a movie is on a NetApp file server or other NetApp product. So when you say files, are you speaking of SMB? Are you speaking of NFS or both? Both. Uh, that's one of the things I like best about NetApp is got the best multi-protocol support of anything we've ever looked at. Um, we share with SMB and NFS. The primary HPC and artist environment is Linux-based, so using NFS. But quite a bit of the content creation on feature film and almost all of the content creation for television is SMB on Windows-based systems. Can you walk me through what the general process is? Like, you know, a machine writes some data to a Linux environment. Does it get picked up by artists from SMB or does it get picked up from NFS? How does that process work, that workflow? It can be both. So we describe what the artists do as the function of their work product. And we describe the steps that an artist takes as a workflow. So if we take a workflow like surfacing, so a surfacer is an artist who paints or creates or modifies images that are used to map onto 3D geometry as part of the rendering process. So a surfacer will use a paint program and they'll read some existing images, maybe paint on them, save them back out, and then they'll get approval from their supervisors on top of the file systems that contain all the assets, we have a very rich uh, data management workflow and asset management system that orchestrates the work. I mentioned a feature film takes four years to make. At the end of the day, we have as many as 500 million files, counting all versions and iterations. So having a system that keeps track of that in addition to the systems that reliably store and deliver that is important. You mentioned you have millions of files in the environment. I'm guessing you're probably using flex groups and if you're not why not <laughs> uh, we definitely are using flex groups for years and years we've used NetApp before even before there was clustering we, we introduced our first clustering in 2006 but for years and years we stitched together a single location transparent namespace using the auto mounter or windows dfs maps that pointed to as many as 50 different shares or volumes for each film primarily to get around the limits in capacity and directory size and object count for each volume. When flex groups came around, the ability to get past 100 terabytes per volume, the ability to get some distribution across multiple aggregates was a huge win for us, both for both operationally and performance. Well, we dabbled with coral volumes back when ONTAP was trying to do distributed volume across aggregates, but we had directory hotspotting problems because a lot of our file activity, more than half, is metadata, uh, lookup access, get adder, symlink type calls to resolve names and only about 20 to 30% of it are reads and writes. Okay, so you've got a high metadata workload, mostly get adders, right? So like it's a lot of seeks. Yeah, get adders and lookups are probably the biggest in the NFS call volume. So the fact that a flex group volume distributes the metadata as well as the file bodies is very helpful for us. Excellent. So it's our standard going forward. Every new show is provisioned as a series of flex group volume. One of the things that flex group does do is gives us some flexibility to change the way we deliver files. We're heavy users of Flex Cache as a way to add ops to the same data set. So we'll have a, a think about Flex Cache as a NFS adder. And before Flex Groups, we'd add a series of Flex Caches in front of the volume, and that did the heavy lifting. Also offloaded the origin filer and kind of gave us a Flex Group-like distributed file system before we had Flex Groups. Adding Flex Groups for systems administration, 
and for latency by improving the overall latency on the filer and by not having to constantly manage data sets underneath that 100 terabyte threshold. So Scotty, you know, with millions and millions of files, I would imagine it's pretty important to keep track of those files. So how are you doing that specifically? Like how was the data management piece coming into play and why is it so important to manage the data properly? That's a great question. It's actually billions of files. Because, oh, my, my bad. <laughs> no, well, it's millions of files per feature film, but each of these films takes about four years to produce. And we release five films every two years. So we've got eight or 10 films in flight at once. So if you look at a couple hundred million files per times 10 films, you're looking at a couple billion plus the entire legacy footprint of files. Um, we do a lot of franchise work and television consumer products. So we essentially keep everything we've produced for the last 25 years are in a file system and accessible um, for when they're needed. So the we use a combination of technique to manage the high file count. One of them is split the workload into multiple different volumes. The, the benefit there is I can keep each volume at a reasonable size. So things like snapshots and snap mirrors behave well, but I can also choose what aggregate media type and which controller hosts that particular volume. Uh, that's the flexibility within ONTAP that we take advantage of all the time. Uh, other systems, they put the files where they want. With ONTAP, I put them where I want. The other thing is um, we're part of the early access. We're looking at Flex Group Analytics as a way to get per file, per file system visibility into what's happening in an active file system. Uh, we also use both homegrown and third-party file system scanners that uh, at scheduled times will do a tree walk and look at M times and of directories and keep a database of what files are in what directories. So we can get trending over time, we can get growth patterns, we can see which branch of the tree is changing, who's making those changes. And we're also working on a system to add per client side data management or data collection. So not only can I tell you which filer volume is growing, I can tell you which clients and which processes and workflows on those clients are generating that change. So that the client view is the last missing piece for large file count operations. So are you um, leveraging XCP at all for any of the reporting and analytics, or is this all you know stuff that you've already had for a while? Yeah, uh, we haven't been uh, looking at XCP. Uh, there's, there's some other third parties that have very efficient parallel tree walkers that we've been taking advantage of. Plus, a few years ago, we wrote our own user space, Python-based uh, NFS tree walker that's also highly parallelized, and we use that to do the tree walks. Once Flex Group Analytics provides APIs to do these queries, we'll use those instead of a tree walk. So as far as the individual files and folders, are you keeping a catalog anywhere of these things so that you can keep track of them and easily find things? Yeah, we have a pretty strict uh, hierarchical namespace. So if you know what a thing is or how it's to be used, you can find it. But we do have a, a business-specific layer above the file system that provides asset management in terms of for this movie and this shot and this scene these are the assets and these are the versions and those assets and versions are made up of this file set. Uh, all of that stuff is maintained external from the file system. Within the file system, we rely on hard links and symbolic links and naming convention to group things together where it makes sense. But the lifespan of a film and the complexities of the number of items, now you think about it, a 90 minute movie is a delivered as 130,000 final frames, not as a movie. We deliver files. We make files. We store everything in the intermediate form as files, and we deliver files. Each of those 130,000 files has 
hundreds of elements that came from thousands of other files. And over the lifespan of a shot, I might iterate two or 300 times. And each of those iterations generates versions of both the source material and the output material. And we keep all of that because part of the creative process is review and comparison to previous versions. And often a creative might say, you know, I like this version of the tree, but that last version of the rock, and we need to have those elements available. So the file system is the durable repository and the namespace represents some of the metadata, but we have an external asset management system that collects together all the rest of the metadata. So you mentioned you have billions of files. Are you are you using specific clusters for specific movies and films, or are you combining them into a single cluster? Do you, I mean, are you able to do multiple workloads in the same cluster? Uh, yeah, we have two main clusters, one primarily for feature film and one primarily for television production. That split is because they used to be in different buildings. Uh, we're looking at maybe combining those together, but we leverage the storage virtual machine concept so that one physical cluster can host as many SVMs to get uh, the partitioning and multi-tenancy behaviors that we need. Uh, what we found is that if you silo hardware to a show, you can't share it across the, the facility. We run storage operations and the compute operations as a multi-tenant cloud with quotes around it. Uh, the things that are great about that is it's agile and I can share things and I can collaborate easily. So it's one big cluster with SVMs where I need partitioning. Otherwise, it's available to any artist at any time from any location. Are your clusters generally the same hardware or are you doing some sort of tiering where you know some clusters have spinning drives and for archival and others have flash? Uh, definitely tiering. One of, the, one of my other favorite NetApp uh, ONTAP features is the ability to have multiple media types to have multiple controller types and controller versions all in the same cluster. So right now, our cluster, the, the main cluster we use for feature animations, a mix of A700s and fast 8080s. Uh, soon, we're going to take some 8080s out, add some FAS 9000s, add some different media type, do vol moves to put the appropriate data set on the appropriate media, all with 100% uptime. So I can add and remove shelves, add and remove nodes, and even of different hardware types in the ONTAP cluster with no service affecting downtime. So can you tell me a little bit about how you manage those vol moves? Is it somebody that's just clicking a button for you or are you automating this somehow? Uh, it's a mix. It's primarily somebody initiates the move, but the need to do the move is part of our monitoring system. So we move data for two reasons. Uh, one of them is to capacity manage aggregates and the other one is to performance manage aggregates and controllers. So if we notice a volume with high latency, as established by the monitoring, we'll look at, is it because of the underlying media? Is it because of the workload? Is it because the data sets on the wrong media type? And then we make an educated decision about what to move where. Uh, when there's capacity management, we're, we're a step away from automating capacity management based vol moves, but we still, because a vol move can be a little bit disruptive during the cutover, we still like to plan when those happen to not interrupt the artist. The, the fact that I need to do a vol move is automated. The pulling the trigger is still a human in the loop. So when you talk about how you figure out latency and the cause of it, how are you doing that? How are you determining where the latency is coming from? Uh, so the, the filers themselves have a very rich set of data. We use an API set called Harvest, which is part of the NetApp community to query the filers and we present Q-tree volume aggregate lift performance through Grafana and use the monitoring and reporting features of Grafana to tell us what's going on. 
Uh, we're also using Cloud Insights as a longer-term trending analysis to look for long-term trends. When there's latency on a volume, uh, we have a fairly strict namespace convention, as I mentioned, but we also categorize each volume by the production that's using it, which film, and the data set type that should be in it. And we understand what workflows generate that data type. Almost always, if a volume has high latency, it's because of a job on the compute farm that's exhibiting an I.O. pattern we didn't expect for that particular data set. Like I mentioned earlier, the last missing piece there is to add to instrument the clients to gather data about what processes are generating what I.O. load on what shares, aggregating that together through some big data analytics. And then we when the filer says, this volume has high latency, the clients will tell us why. So is, is it going to feed into like a central monitoring system to tell you why, or are you going to have to, to query uh, those? No, it should be a monitoring system. So we're building a, a, an analytics platform. So there's an agent on every client that's in the data path instrumenting the NFS client, and it collects information about read, write, open, close, the path, the process that does it. We can correlate the process tree back to our compute farm management, and our business logic on top of that knows about the job and the steps that it ran. So we can correlate the job and its steps to the IO patterns, feed those, and since the job runs on multiple farm machines, we feed all that through a Kafka endpoint and then do analytics to figure out like which path is hot or which job is hot or which application generates certain bad behaviors and then correlate that to the filer. And it should be a closed system. And we're, we're expecting it to be as automated as possible, but as you develop the analytics, there's humans in the loop there as well. So can you speak to any other type of automation you're doing? I mean, are you, are you leveraging NetApp Trident? Are you leveraging any sort of orchestrators for that? Uh, Kubernetes? Yeah, we do. yeah, so for automation, one of our goals for automation is if the system can do it itself, it should. And that frees up the engineers to do the strategically more difficult things. So we use automation. I mentioned an ONTAP, the auto shrink and auto grow. We have a uh, both a WFA and a Active IQ Unified Manager endpoint collection that are used for their APIs. The way we delegate provisioning, for example, is WFA recipes that do the steps to create a volume, create an aggregate, create a queue tree, manage exports, and all the rest of that. And we present the API to our cloud controller. So none of our applications talk to the filers directly. They talk to the WFA endpoint to do the orchestration. And then same thing for Oakum. So the, the data gathering and the provisioning metrics and monitoring talk to ActiveIQ Unified Manager instead of talking to the filers directly to get the aggregate view of the world. And then external to that, we use, I guess there's CICD style mechanisms through what we call the DreamWorks cloud control plane. So when a new film starts, for example, there's an automated process that calls the WFA recipes and creates all of the shares needed for a show uh, establishes their initial capacity, updates the automator maps and the DFS maps, and presents that back to the end user as a provision to show. And then operationally, if a volume does need its size adjusted beyond what auto grow and auto shrink can do, uh, there is an endpoint to increase the size of a Q tree or the size of a volume that's end user accessible people who with the right permissions can manage their own capacity. So let's touch a little bit more on the FlexCache piece. How many FlexCaches are you standing up for an origin? Are you, are you doing it per node? Are you spanning the entire cluster? And is it the same size as the origin or are they smaller? They're, they're smaller. One of the things that's great about FlexCache is that it's a, basically a sparse replica. 
instead of doing a full snap mirror to a, another destination, I could use a flex cache as a sparse replica and only have to replicate the files that I need. So we do a couple things. We use flex cache remotely at our data centers that are far away from campus to do WAN latency cancellation. So we have dedicated C-series filers that only run flex cache in front of our remote render farms. We also run flex cache in CVO instances in the cloud service providers to provide an extension of the on-premises namespace into the cloud service providers for remote rendering. And then on campus, we have some dedicated caching appliances as well as caching within the same C-mode clusters on behalf of weaker nodes in the cluster, if that makes sense. So basically, you're trying to offload some of those operations to other nodes so that those weaker nodes are protected. Yes, exactly right. So the FlexCache for us does three things. I mentioned WAN latency cancellation. It also provides offload from the origin, and it also provides horizontal scalability for hot file sets. If I've got a file set that's in an aggregate and it gets pummeled by the rest of the cluster, that aggregate can get busy. But if I can flex cache that volume, then I can offload that origin and continue. So we offload the origin through flex caches, mostly for the HPC environment, which leaves the origin resources available for interactive performance for the artists. So it's an insulator as well. Yeah, so I imagine the HPC environments, you know, you know a job is going to run for a certain set of shots, so you can flex cache off of those origins with those shots, and now you can work off of those, those flex cache volumes instead. You, you would think, but we don't have a lot of predictability into what gets approved and when the directors or the artists want to render something. So we tend to flex cache a namespace of an active show and rely on the, the flex cache's ability to selectively manage files based on reference. So we've talked a lot about having knowledge ahead of time and then uh, priming the flex cache. It turns out that locality is really good in our workflow. So once a file has been referenced by workflow, it'll stay in the caches for a couple of weeks as that shot gets worked from one point to the end. Yeah. And you mentioned it's a sparse cache. So we're not keeping the entire file, right? We're keeping the, the parts of the file that are being actually used. Yeah. More importantly for us, it's the parts of the directory that are being referenced. I don't have to fully replicate. So if I've got a petabyte origin, I could have, you know, tens of terabytes as my at my flex cache end. And given the size of the working set at any point in time, the flex cache represents everything that that endpoint needs out of that uh, petabyte of possibilities. The other benefit there is in a traditional extent to the cloud, you might stand up your resources in the cloud service provider and then have to replicate a data set before you can start work. And that can take hours or days. With FlexCache, I can instance my compute farm nodes and instance some cloud volumes on top of FlexCache and start using it. I don't have to wait for the data to populate because it populates on demand through the FlexCache. So it's for us, it's a much more agile way to do burst compute and to do um, extension into the cloud. It also provides for a way for everyone to have the same data, right? You're, when you make changes, you don't have a change that has to replicate back. It's it's automatically applied, and then the cache is evicted and then repopulated with that new change. Yeah, exactly right. So using the caches to extend your namespace instead of mirrors means that all the endpoints are read-write, and at the end of the day, NFS is eventually consistent, so you get the same byte. So the way we... Expose these things, whether it's on premises or in a remote data center or in a cloud service provider, is the same path will always get you to the same byte. That byte might be on the origin, it might be in a on tap select node, it might be in a cloud volumes on tap with flex cache node, but it will always get the same byte no matter where you are. 
So now I guess you would do that by exposing the flex cache paths rather than the origin paths. Yeah, uh, it's interesting. The way we do that, we don't want the paths to change because both people and applications remember paths. So we do some tricks with the auto mounter so that depending on if you reference, for example, slash studio slash Shrek, um, if you're in a flex cached environment, we rewrite the DNS name that is the endpoint to use during the auto mounter map lookup so that studio Shrek is the same no matter where you are when you reference it. But you get that localized copy as opposed to having to traverse. You get the localized copy, but the artist or the process using it doesn't know. Yeah, they don't, they don't care. It's basically a, a DFS for NFS. That's exactly right. Yeah, we're using it to implement a DFS-like behavior. Are you also leveraging things like uh, Fabric Pool to tear off data to something like S3, either on-prem or in uh, We do. We, we use Fabric Pool to tier to storage grid, actually. We have tested the cloud service provider endpoints, but we found the economics and performance of storage grid to be brilliant. And our, our strategy on capacity management is to do that in the storage grid tier with Fabric Pool, and then the performance tier will be all flash. That's where we're headed. Right now, we've got a healthy healthy chunk in the middle of flash pool hard drive aggregates that we use for cool but not cold data. And the intent currently for storage, storage grid and fabric pool is the cold data. Then as we gain experience and uh, visibility into some knobs, we're going to increase the value of the data that goes into the fabric pool and storage grid will increase to be the current data set as well. So you mentioned storage grid for tiering. Are you using it at all for object? Are you moving anything towards object? Yeah. So in addition to tiering with Fabric Pool, Storage Grid is the fundamental game piece in our tape replacement strategy. Our intent is to be mechanical tape free by the end of 2020. And so Storage Grid is also the destination for traditional legacy backups, as well as the destination via direct connectors to all of our database backups. It's also our container repository. And for workflows that can use object directly, things like thumbnail images and some other repositories, it's the primary storage. How do your artists say if they need a a file or a repository access that's already been backed up to object, how do they access that? Is it through a web interface or are they doing something else? Uh, It depends how it was backed up, but that's one of the joys of the fabric pool implementation is artists don't have to know where it is. They just have to know the namespace. And when you reference it, it comes back from storage grid and repopulates into the fabric pool aggregate. For colder data, depending on which mechanism moved it, there's a browsable interface and self-service restore. Or if it's a larger data set, there's the, the backup administrators will go ahead and do that restore on their behalf. As far as uh, unstructured NAS goes, I mean, what other sort of feature sets are you using that other people might not be aware of in ONTAP? Like what are some of the, the, the secrets that you use or some of the hidden gems that you found? As much as we can, probably my favorite, I don't know if it's a secret, but I think it's underutilized. One of my favorite ONTAP features is the auto shrink and auto grow for capacity management. So we switched uh, years ago to doing thin provisioning for everything and putting a, a, a finger guard on each volume by using auto shrink and auto grow. That was in recognition of noticing that most of our storage trouble tickets or request tickets were to increase the size of a share. and no one ever puts in a ticket to decrease the size of a share. So the space would be committed even if it was unused. So moving to thin provisioning allowed that storage. You can commit all you want, but until you actually use it, it's not using underlying aggregate storage. Uh, We use volume limits and quotas not to restrict what people can do, but as an upper limit for metrics and monitoring. 
So we expect a particular workflow or department to use, say, 100 terabytes. That's what we'll set the autogrow limit to. And then when we get near that, our alerting system will let us know that we're at capacity, which forces a review of the data set size and the workflow to make sure that that increase is expected or maybe it's a mistake. Uh, one of the things we found is when you have a large HPC compute farm, you've got your own denial of service engine that can create data really quickly. So I think auto shrink, auto grow, uh, snapshots, of course, we've been using snapshots for self-service artist backup for years, ever since snapshot was invented. And then snap mirror to do our backups because backup windows can be a problem. And with snap mirror, backup windows are essentially zero time. But more importantly, our, our snap mirror secondary is a crucial part of our business continuance. Rather than have to provision a new origin and restore and then resume operations, in the event of a disaster, the snap mirror secondary is turned into the primary and we continue operations within a few minutes. So that, you know, it's an interesting point that you're using your secondary as primary. Are you sizing the secondary the same as the source so that you have the same performance or are you just mailing uh, it's in a, a bit sized of about the same on capacity. It's actually bigger on capacity because of our uh, snap mirror retention policy. It's smaller on controllers, but the way we'll offset that is with flex cache. So I can basically reverse the flow. My snap mirror secondary is offsite and we'll take any onsite controllers or cloud volume on tap controllers, make them flex caches to that origin. So they'll provide the offload of the origin behavior that we get. And that, that will buy us time. We recognize that in a business continuance scenario, things will be degraded, but the key is that they're functional and I can continue creating content. Yeah. So rather than losing in you know hours and hours of, of build time, you actually get to keep building. Maybe it's not as fast, but you definitely can keep mo moving along. Yeah, exactly right. Because tr with a traditional backup, you have to provision a place to put it, then you have to restore it, and then you can start doing work. And that can take days or weeks, depending on the data set size and the availability of hardware. By essentially pre-provisioning the business continuance hardware, I, I can just start using it. And then I can supplement that with cloud volumes on tap or flex cash running on NetApp on tap select license, any, things like that. All right, Scotty, thanks so much for joining us today and telling us all about how DreamWorks is leveraging NetApp for their infrastructure. So Scotty, again, if we wanted to reach you, how'd we do that? I think the best thing is to find me on LinkedIn and uh, send me a message. And I'm glad to reply and carry on the conversation. All right, excellent. Thanks so much for joining us. All right, that music tells me it's time to go. If you'd like to get in touch with us, send us an email to podcast at netapp.com or send us a tweet at netapp. As always, if you'd like to subscribe, find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or via techontappodcast.com. If you like the show today, leave us a review. On behalf of the entire Tech on Tap podcast team, I'd like to thank Scotty Miller from DreamWorks for joining us today. As always, thanks for listening. Oh, yeah. Is it just me that's getting off on this? Oh, yeah.